0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this New Books Network podcast. My name is Katriana Gold. I'm a PhD candidate at University College London, and today I'm very excited to be interviewing Stephen Diel about the new English edition of The Soviet Passport, the history, nature, and uses of the internal passport in the USSR. This new English edition was released by Policy Press in November 2021. The book was written by Russian anthropologist Albert Bayburen and translated by Stephen, my guest today. This is the first time it's been translated to English, having been released in Russian originally in 2017. Its author, Albert Beiberin, cannot join us today, but has given us his blessing to discuss the book without him, and we're very excited to do so. So my guest today is the book's translator, Stephen Diel, who has had a fascinating career working in various capacities as a Soviet expert, and currently runs his own media training and consultancy business, business, DLC Consulting. And we'll hear more about that later, I think. But without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Stephen.
0: Thank you very much, Kat. It's a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to be talking about this really interesting book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And congratulations on the book. I was really excited to hear about this new translation because, uh, as I was mentioning before the interview, this book has actually been recommended to me before by a Russianist colleague. And until now, I haven't been able to do anything with that recommendation. So I'm personally grateful to Polity and to Stephen for producing this translation. Um Translation is incredibly valuable work. I know it's not always easy and certainly not always uh, as appreciated as as it should be. And of course, the book is fascinating. So thanks again, Stephen. Um, To start us off today, I wonder if you could give our listeners a brief overview of what the book covers and why it's important. So what exactly was The Soviet Passport? Why did it matter? What did you need a passport for? Who needed a passport? Who got a passport? Uh, Please tell us.
0: Well, all very good, very valid questions and all covered in this excellent book. Um, Really, what it's referring to, though, is something It might be a bit confusing for the Western mind, because this is a passport that doesn't actually allow you to pass through any port, because what it is, it's the Soviet internal uh, identity document. Um, and so this is this is a, a, something you really need to get your head around right at the beginning. That um, in the Soviet Union and indeed today in modern Russia, Russians have two passports. Um, in fact, some of them only have one. If they only have one, it's the internal passport. This is it's an ID document. Um, if they want to travel abroad, they have to apply to get another to get a, what we would think of as a passport. But they always talk about this as um, as, as the Soviet passport uh, for. for for internal purposes. So it's um, it's an ID document. It, uh, it you, If you register for a job, you have to uh, produce your passport. Um, if you're buying a plane ticket, or indeed even a train ticket now to travel around Russia, you have to produce your passport to buy the ticket. So it's, it's a very important document. And the real value of this book is that it takes us back before the Soviet, uh, the Bolshevik revolution of 1917, and talks in in the initial chapter about not only about what was going on in russia in the russian empire in czarist times where they had the internal passport but also it gives uh, examples in uh, in europe in particular um we could even go back don't worry i won't i won't talk about this for too long i'm not going to go from prehistoric times but if you go to the old testament and the book of nehemiah there is a reference to uh, someone asking for the king to give him travel documents uh, in order to pass through various borders. So that's seen the, as the earliest reference, as it were, to any kind of passport. Um, but then it, it, that, that, just that beginning chapter was absolutely fascinating. Think, it's something I'd never really thought about before. But in fact, um, through history, lots of countries have had internal travel documents um, uh, because also, in particular, peasantry were often tied to the land and they weren't allowed to go anywhere. And so they had to have permission from their their owner, not just the landowner, but from their personal owner to be able to travel anywhere. Um, And this was certainly the case in Russia. So that's how the, the internal passport develops. In Europe, the internal passport rather faded away when the train system, the railway system spread, because suddenly people were traveling much more and it just became too difficult to keep tabs on people in russia and this kind of rings true in the soviet period and even today where they're so bureaucratic the more railways there were the more they increased the uh, the, the the need to have a, a passport to travel around the country so it's a very russian thing and um, so the the book goes into that so that first chapter was a real revelation to me and taught me an awful lot about not just russian history but about world history and particularly european history but then it goes on with the revolution uh, and how it talks how, how the, the Bolsheviks, and Lenin in particular, Lenin de- de- decried the internal passport. He said, this is outrageous. This is uh, an example of a, um, the control exerted by a police state. And for 15 years after the revolution in 1917, there was no internal passport. And suddenly in 1932, they they bring it back. And then it becomes the most controlling document uh, for, for all Soviet citizens. Um, and as I say, even up to the present day, all Russians have to have their internal passport, which they're now issued at the age of 14. It used to be 16. It's now 14. So that's a sort of a brief introduction. I mean, I don't want to tell the whole story of the book, but um, uh, but that it, it, it that's just gives you an idea of the whole period it covers. So it goes from early times, um, goes into quite a lot of detail about the late pre-Soviet period, the late Russian Empire period. Then there's the revolution. Then of course, what it's really about, because it's called the Soviet passport. So it's about the period from 1917 to 1991. Uh, and then talks about how essential it was and, and, and what would happen, for, for example, God forbid, if you lost it. Um, that, that caused all sorts of problems for people in, in such a bureaucratic country.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's so many interesting details in this book that I had absolutely no idea about. I mean, just the number of things that you sort of needed a passport for. I mean, I, yeah, I wonder if that's something you'd be able to say more about it. it yeah, it seemed like it was important for a great sort of number of things and having one opened up doors or you know, not having one closed doors, right? Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, and in fact, when they... So uh, even as late as 1930, in the the lesser Soviet encyclopedia, there was a, an entry about passports, again, saying how, ah oh, the internal passport, that was a terrible example of the police state. And only two years later, they introduced it. And when they introduced it, it was more to single out people they didn't like. So in other words, the old bourgeoisie, anyone who was connected with the uh, the old system. Um, so it became not only a, an internal travel document and, a, and necessary for registration, but it was a way of weeding out those in the population who didn't fit in with the new proletarian way of doing things um, and a way of absolutely controlling the population. Um, and there's one uh, quite horrific passage, um, quite a long passage, um, Quotation from a from a from another work from um, 1937, um, the 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 time really the 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 start and and uh, Stalin's purges, um, uh, where um, there's a a writer is was saying how he'd been in um, Leningrad at the time, obviously now modern day Saint Petersburg once again, and how. uh, they had issued, after the, the assassination of um, Sergei Kirov, who was a Bolshevik leader, um, no one knows who killed Kirov to this day and whether it was all a set-up job in order, in order to, to, to weed out the, what they saw as the undesirable elements of the population. In other words, those who still had connections with the czarist uh, the past. Um, there's this amazing passage where um, a, a member of the old aristocracy, has gone to this place where people are pleading with the authorities for a passport, for not to expel them from uh, from, from Leningrad, um, because hundreds of thousands of people, who anyone who had any sort of connection with the old regime, were expelled, and they were sent to places in Siberia, they were sent to places in the far south. Many of them then ended up in labour camps or were shot. I mean, they... they that The history of uh, it, it, it tangentially touches on the history of Stalin's purges, and, and um, you know Russia is a, a very peculiar country in that it's killed so many of its own people over the years, and particularly in uh, Stalin's time. Um, but it's it, it's a really vivid account, sort of saying how you know old women sort of pleading, you know, look, you know, I'm I'm, I'm old, I can barely walk, and you're telling me I've got to go on a train all the way down to Astrakhan, which is going to be three days journey on a train down to the south of Russia. Um, and it, it's, it's written in a really heartfelt way. Um, this, as I say, is a, it's a quotation from another work, but it's very good that Albert included it in the book. Um, so uh, th- this, this idea that the passport was became a way of control, not just of people registering, but of actually controlling the population. And it goes hand in hand with another vital word. And in fact, I chose in the translation to, to keep the original Russian word uh, and have an explanation, put in a footnote with an explanation of the word prapiska. And prapiska I use rather than registration, which is, is what it means. But to you say to a modern Russian about prapiska or anyone in the Soviet period, and they will almost go cold because if you didn't have this registration, this prapiska, you were not allowed to live in Moscow or Leningrad or any of the big cities. You had to have permission to live there. And so, of course, the, the the stamp of the of the Propiska goes into your internal passport. So even if you have an internal passport, if you don't have that propiska and you try and live in, in, in Moscow, if you get stopped by the by the police or the militia, as they called them in Soviet times, if you don't have Propiska, you're in serious trouble. Um, and you will probably be given 10 days to leave the city. Now, the interesting thing as well is that One reason why they could kick you out of the city where people wanted to live was that the peasantry, and they used that term a lot then, all through Soviet times, so people who lived on collective farms weren't issued with the passport. This was another thing. This, I have to admit, I didn't even know this, even despite having studied Soviet history for, well, best part of 50 years, I'm afraid now, Um, and... um, the, the idea that the, the peasantry was only in the 1974 version of the Constitution that it said, okay, the peasantry will be allowed to have passports. And then by the time they got around to issuing them, it was about 1976. But it, it's only about 1983, 84, so the middle of the 80s, within a decade of what's going to be the end of the Soviet Union, that even if a peasant had the internal passport, if the local collective farm, the Kalhor's, another word that I I, dis, uh, I, I uh, explain in the book, but use the Russian word kalhoz, um, if they didn't have permission from the Kalhors to leave, they couldn't leave. So even with the internal passport, you still couldn't go and live in the city if you wanted to. So passport, prapiska and kalhors are three words which become crucial in Soviet history. And this book really brings this out.
1: Right, yeah, I like the way that you sort of keep these these original terms in and and contextualize them as well. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, uh, I think that's that's super interesting, and I guess it would have a different resonance for a Russian speaker than it does for me. Yeah, um, and I, I mean, I want, that's something actually, I mean, we've started to get onto it. I wonder if we could also discuss during this interview, is that translation process um, and, and how that, well, how that worked for you but maybe first um what we could talk about is how you came to be translating this book in the first place I'm so glad you did um I know you've had a really interesting career up to this point um so maybe you could sort of walk us through that a bit and how you came um and I know you translated another book recently in I think the same series right um yeah. so yeah maybe tell tell us a bit about how, how you got to this point okay yeah
0: um well, for, for reasons that I have given up trying to work out for myself, from the time I was a small boy, I was fascinated by things Russian. Now, anyone who's listening to this who's also fascinated by things Russian will understand that we can't explain it. I don't have any Russian connections that I know of. I don't have any Russian ancestors. But um, I, I can remember wanting to go and see Dr Zhivago when it came out, uh, the film with Omar Sharif and Julie Christie, when I was seven or eight years old, not and I didn't see it and fall in love with Russia. I wanted to see it because I knew it was about Russia. I can't explain why. But from that point onwards, I knew that Russia was going to play some part in my life. And then when I was uh, well, when I was at school, I was 13 years old, and the school I was at offered the chance to start learning Russian. And literally after one lesson, I just knew this is for me. This is my thing. Um, and I then went on to university and studied at the University of Leeds in England, uh, which had a very good Russian department at the time. Um, I won a British Council scholarship to the Soviet Union. So I studied for a whole year, um, actually in in Kiev, um, uh, in Soviet times, 1979, 80. Um, And then when I graduated, um, I'd already been in touch with a small department um, at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. It was a civilian department working closely with the British Army. Um, and indeed with the US Army in uh, in the future as well. I made a number of trips to the States to give lectures about the Soviet Army. So I was a lecturer and researcher on the Soviet Army throughout the 80s. And then in 1988, I moved to the BBC World Service. Um, For me, with Gorbachev being in power in the Soviet Union, the political scene looked more interesting than the military scene. Um, The changes that were happening in the Soviet Union were fascinating. And I happened to be in the right place at the right time, saw this job advertised at uh, BBC World Service, and, um, and and was fortunate enough to be chosen for it. And I then spent a fascinating 16 years all through those crazy 1990s in, in Russia, reporting based in London, but going out to Russia a lot, reporting on and from Russia on what was happening, all through the Yeltsin years, the arrival of Vladimir Putin, the first four years of Putin. Um, BBC then made a wonderful uh, 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 choice in 2004. They called me in and they said, you know, Stephen, Russia's not really news anymore, so we're closing your post. Um, They were having to make cuts, and they decided that our excellent department we had, which was covering world affairs and giving analysis, could be salami sliced back. So sadly, um, my BBC time came to a close. But since then, I worked uh, for a consultancy. Uh, I ran the Russell British Chamber of Commerce for five years, trying to encourage British firms to work with Russian firms. Um, I did that for five years till 2012, and decided I wanted a, a change. And that's when I set up my own company, which is just me um, doing media training. Um, I edited uh, a, a journal on Russian space. Um, uh, I've uh, I, I write still. My um, broadcast on a, a small radio station called Monocle 24, um, uh, and. I was also very keen, I, going back to university days, I always loved translating from Russian to English. Um, and so I, I joined a Russian, there's a Russian translators network, and I joined that and I put, put it out there that I was interested particularly in books on history or politics. Um, and it, this was picked up by one of my fellow translators who passed it on to Polity Books, uh, the publisher of The Soviet Passport. Uh, and so the first book I translated for them, they asked me to translate, uh, which came out under the rather clumsy title, I feel, of The Return of the Russian Leviathan. But that is also available. It's by an author called Sergei Medvedev. And that I really recommend. Anyone who wants to know about Putin's Russia, do go and read The Return of the Russian Leviathan. Um, it's a series of essays, effectively, written about um, Putin's third term. And it, it's, it's brilliant. Um I hope the translation's good too, but the the book itself uh, really, really is is good. In fact, it won the There's a um, Russian uh, cultural institute in London called Pushkin House, and that won the uh, Pushkin House Russian Book Prize in 2020. Um, so, having translated that one for Polity, um, originally they they asked me to look at someone else's um, an extract that they translated of the Soviet passport, um, and. Uh, it wasn't terribly good. And so I had to tell them, well, this isn't terribly good. So they said, they then said to me, well, would you like to translate it? Uh, and uh, <laughs> this was about two weeks before the first COVID lockdown in, uh, in March 2020 in, in Britain. So I was commissioned to translate this book, which is about 500 pages long. And so I knew suddenly at the start of March 2020, I thought, well, that's me in front of my computer for the next six or seven months. And then suddenly we're in lockdown. Oh, well, so I was gonna be in front of my computer anyway. Um, so I consider myself as very lucky to have had this, been commissioned to do this um, and, um, and set about doing it. Uh, the crucial thing when you're translating is to know your own language very well. Obviously you have to know the language you're translating from, but the real challenge is to make that translation read as if it's not a translation. Um, if, you see, if you understand what I mean, it's it's got to read well in your own language. So it's vital that you know your own language. Um, and it's also vital that you know uh, something about the subject. Now, that's where I had some real challenges, um, because although I know Soviet history pretty well, and of, of, I, when I was at university, I, I made a point of, concentrating on, on history rather than literature as a study. I love reading literature, but I don't particularly like studying it. Um, but I love studying history. And so although I knew, I felt I knew a lot, um, of huge help um, was um, a uh, a woman called Katrina Kelly, uh, who's a professor at Oxford University. And she has worked with Albert Burin, the author of the book, over many years. Uh, but this is very much sociology and uh, and uh, anthropology are, are very much her subjects as well. Uh, and so, um, in, in fact, uh, when I'd finished my translation, Polity asked her to, to look over it, and she made some really, really useful uh, suggestions. Translation, in many ways, is a solitary affair. As I say, I was, and it was locked down, I was seven months in front of my computer uh, working on my own. But to, to, to get a really good translation... Um, you you have to be open minded and uh, generous enough to say to someone, "Will you look at this and and tell me where if I've gone wrong, or tell me where I could use a better phrase?" And, and Katrina Kelly was wonderful for that because she really gave some advice. And in fact, I suggested to um, to Albert, the uh, Albert Baiborin, the the author, that at the end of the. The, uh, the preface we put in an extra line saying that the author and the translator would like to thank Professor Katrina Kelly for her for her advice because she really helped to make to make the book e- even better um, so it, it's often a collaborative process translation and for example this translation network I belong to and um, almost every day we, I get emails from people I mean we all get them on, on the network saying you know look you um, what you know? I've been asked to translate this word or this phrase. Can anyone give any any advice on that? So, even though it's a solitary process in many ways, it's all it's also um, can be a team effort, and that's what makes it really worthwhile. And also produces, I hope, a very readable book at the end of it.
1: Right. I think yeah. That's I mean that's really interesting to hear about. You suspect it would have to be collaborative. Um, I mean yeah. I mean, and the particular challenges of of sort of translating. Um, translating something where the author can't sort of—I mean, yeah where well, the author can't weigh in because obviously sometimes books are translated and the author does speak the language they're being translated to. But in this case, well, that wasn't the case. That's why that's why Albert isn't able to join us today. Um, so, and I, yeah, how did you how did you deal with that?
0: Well, if I can go back to the previous book um, as a, as, an, as a contrast, really, because Sergei Medvedev, who wrote *The Return of the Russian Leviathan*. His English is superb, and I have met him. And he's been over here. This is a couple of years ago, and he, he, I was organizing a conference. He came and spoke at the conference, so we, we've we've met in person. I've heard him speak English. I've heard him, you know, stand up in front of an audience and give a lecture. Um, so there, I would send chapter by chapter. I would send to Sergei, and he would he would look at it and make some suggestions and send it back, and then. Ask questions, and sometimes I'd explain why I'd use a particular phrase, and he'd say, "Oh, okay, that's fine. Yeah, that's what, what sounds good in English." But that was that was quite easy. This time was was a bit more challenging. But I did suggest right at the start, and I've never met Albert. Uh, obviously, it's been locked down, and and uh, so he hasn't been to to the UK. I haven't been to Russia the last couple of years. Um, we haven't met. We've never spoken personally, but email which you know, in my youth wasn't there, but what a wonderful thing it is now. So I said to him right at the start, look, this is what I did on my last book. Would you like me to do this? And he said, oh, yes, please, because he has a basic knowledge of English, but his daughter speaks English pretty well. So I would send it chapter by chapter or part, if it was a long chapter, I'd break it up and send, send chunks, as it were, as I did them. And so he would write back and say, "What about this?" or "You know, my daughter suggested that." Or, um, "Can you explain a bit more why you've used this phrase?" Um, and and it worked really well. I, and I acknowledge that I've been so lucky to do that. There's when you when you're working on a translation, obviously, if the you, you know the author might be dead, in which case you're you can't ask what the author thinks of the of the the translation, but if they do. Um, I've been so lucky with both of mine because I've spoken to other translators who've said, you know, X was a nightmare to work with because they questioned every single thing. And um, I once had a many years ago. I set off on a project to do a translation um, back in the eighties, actually, um, and I won't name the the author, but he'd written this book, which in Russian was called Rastrelliene Marshale. Now the subject of the book is those marshals of the Soviet Union, of the Soviet army, whom Stalin had had shot before the Second World War. And we know that, um, for example, Marshal Tukhachevsky, who is generally regarded by military people as one of the greatest military thinkers of any country, any time, and because of Stalin's paranoia, and he had these five marshals shot. And so this author had written this book and I'd actually gone along with him when he was in London. I'd gone along to the publisher and I'd seen that he'd been given a very large check as, a, as an advance for, the, for this book. And I was going to translate it. And I read through it and I thought, this is awful. It was really badly written. Um, and I thought, well, I've got to make a better job of it. And then, and I'd started, I'd worked through the first quarter or so of the book. And then I got a, a message, or a letter, of course, in those days from the publisher saying, this book's awful. We've, one of our reviewers in America has looked at it and said, it's dreadful. I, I, I said, I know it's dreadful, but I thought you wanted me to do it. They said, no, 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 forget it. We're dropping it. And I thought, after the money they paid him, wow, this is a big publisher, fortunately. But the funniest thing of all was that the author spoke a little bit of English. And so he wanted me to call it in English, The Shotted Marshals. And I said to him, That makes no sense in English. No, no, no. You must call it the Shotted Marshal. No, no. It is Rastrellini Marshall. It means the Shotted Marshals. No, it means the marshals that Stalin had shot, which would be a very clumsy title. And we were still arguing over the title when the book got dropped. So there can be uh, uh, cases where the the author is not the easiest person to work with. Uh, I was very, very lucky, both with my first book and with the Soviet passport. Albert Byboran, as I say, I've yet to meet him. I look forward to that day because he was such a lovely man to work with, very cooperative uh, and very helpful, and had the advantage that his daughter's English was good enough that between us, we could, I hope, make a, a very readable book.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you succeeded. And yeah. yeah, that's, I mean, I'm glad to hear it too. It's always good to hear that, you know, behind the scenes things were working well. Right. I guess we, we hear less about those sort of, uh, yeah, abortive attempts to do something as you just described. Um, but yeah, I think that is a really interesting, uh, in, insight or into how the role you can play as a translator or, you know, are able to play right mediating these things. Um, yeah, okay. So uh, perhaps, perhaps we could um, move along to something I was particularly curious about. Um, we're not going to discuss the whole of the book. Obviously, it is a huge, very interesting book, so much incredible detail in there that was, you know, new to me, and I think will be new to a lot of people. I just want I mean, I, you know, I work on the US passport office during the during the Cold War, so that's that's the context for me coming to this book, um, and is that sort of when when I speak about that, I'll often get asked a question, you know, about well, what about what was going on in the Soviet Union at the same time? What about the passport system there? And of course, there are multiple kinds of passport system that we could talk about. This is just one, but I, w- I will say it's it's really interesting to have this, um, if I can say Russian. Perspective on passports, as well as this specific passport system, but you know, passports and an idea of passports and their function, um, because I think you know, there's a few histories of passports that are really interesting that I've looked at. Um, so like, uh, John Torpes, uh, Craig Robertson's, uh, or Mark Salters, for example, um, all really interesting works, but sort of come from a different perspective and have a different focus. And are, and are obviously primarily focused on the types of passports that are for international travel or became to be for international travel. So this is a, it's a totally different thing. And so among other details that, uh, that I was really interested in. Um, I suppose the main thing was sort this, of this opening to chapter two in the book, um, where we have Lenin's condemnation of the pre-existing Tsarist passport regime. I know we've touched on that, um, and then this, this regime is actually pretty quickly abolished, um, so only to make an appearance in a new form later, um, as as sort of uh, yeah, the the new governments have struggled to manage um, the population, and and so I wonder. Stephen, if you could tell us slightly more about that, because I think that's a story our, our listeners would really be interested in. Um, what, what, what was the, the Tsarist passport regime um, and sort of why did it need to be abolished? And also, why did a new passport, why was the passport regime reinstated? You know, what challenges were trying to be addressed? Uh, what challenges were, sorry, was the new government trying to address um, with that? Yeah, I'd love to hear about that.
0: So we again, I'll try not to go through year by year, but we really need to go back to Peter the Great and the beginning of the 18th century in Russia for the time when some kind of internal travel document is, 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 is produced and the first use of the word passport or indeed, as it was first written down in, in Russian. Um, so that's, it, it comes in and it, it's, um, it, it's a status symbol in that, at that point. That it's the nobility who have them, and and they're allowed to travel, and and um, the the peasantry, and of course we've got they're talking about serfs in that time. Who you know that um, this this awful system whereby people own other people, and so a good landowner would would own maybe a few hundred serfs. and if any of them wanted to travel somewhere else to work at some point temporarily, they would need some kind of travel document. So the, it, it develops and it becomes more and more as Russia becomes more and more bureaucratic. One thing which Peter the Great learned, Peter the Great traveled, spent about a year traveling and and to learn foreign ways of doing things. And one of the the, the most lasting uh, Legacies of Peter the Great is the the Germanic way of doing things. We think of the the Germans as being terribly orderly and and bureaucratic, but as as they always they have been and they they are. Um, and Peter the Great picked this up and in fact just made it even more so. So the the under the Russian Empire the bureaucracy became very very tight, um, and so the, this the the, the the details that were needed in a passport became more and more. Um, Curiously, and this is one of the early things, that curiously, um, things like um, colour of hair mattered more than colour of eyes, which is strange because, um, as I have found as I've got a little older, well, what I've got left of it, you know, it's got more grey. Hair colour changes and indeed can be changed easily by hair dye, whereas your eyes, okay, nowadays you can put in contact lenses, but in in the 18th and 19th centuries you couldn't. Um, So... Uh, and a point that is also comes out was um, it was about what you wore. The early passports, all the early travel documents, internal travel documents were, were about what you would be wearing because, because it was for nobles, you would be expected to dress in a certain way because if you were an ambassador, you would you have a particular uniform. So that would be written in the travel document and not your external features, which I found very curious, very interesting but the the more the nineteenth century goes on, they then sort of start putting in oh, um, person more personal details. But of course, another thing to bear in mind: these were documents for men. Um, the you know women women um, were entered into their father's passport before they married, and then their husband's passport after they were married. And it's only really at about the turn of the century, and then with the coming of the First World War in 1914, that women are actually allowed in Russia to have their own passport. Um, now, of course, that is something that the Bolsheviks thought was was, was very poor. They, they always held themselves up as being um, uh, all for uh, equality. And so when they do re- reintroduce the passport in 1932, of course, women are issued the passport too. But that's racing ahead of it let's, let's go back a bit so um so 1917 comes and no one has a passport and well they do have them still they've got them from the previous times but they decide and, and you know bear in mind this is a country in chaos it's a country which is still involved in the first world war it's got there's a revolution going on there, there's a very very bloody civil war that follows the revolution um so the people's lives are turned upside down. So for the first few years, um, the Bolsheviks are trying to get a grip on on the country, but it's more about fighting off the, the whites, the, uh, the, 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 the old regime, um, creating a, a country that they can somehow run. And we come into the 1920s and they then have to go back on some of their principles and they create what's called the new economic policy, NEP, sometimes known by its initials and nep allowed a bit of capitalism because they suddenly realized that if they didn't allow people to be a little bit entrepreneurial the country was going to collapse um there was going to be starvation uh it, 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 the, the country was in a real uh, real turmoil but then in, in 1928 they end nep and They go back, in some ways, to that old situation. There is, again, turmoil. There is real fear of starvation, particularly in the countryside. And what you then get are hundreds of thousands of people flooding into the cities because they think, that's where I'm going to live better. And so this goes on for a a few years. And by 1932, they're thinking, we need somehow to control this. So, So there's a number of reasons why they bring back the passport. And one of them is to stop this flow of people uncontrolled from the countryside into the into the towns and cities. But this is where the ideology comes in as well. And they decide, ah, well, this is also our way of weeding out the people from the old regime. And so suddenly it becomes almost a privilege to have the internal passport. You've got to be politically uh, in, the right, in the right frame of mind. You've got, to be, you've got to be a worker. You've got to be a proletarian have a passport and if you're seen if even if you were the secretary to um uh, a a local landover landowner in in czarist times you will not be given a passport you are told you're you're out you can't live in the city so then you get this this huge turnover of people of, of people being kicked out of the cities and there's some again one of the great values of the book is that it 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 quotes some very interesting passages of um uh, of, of people sort of telling their stories of, of how they they went about getting a passport or they were terrified that they were waiting for that knock on the door to be told you know you're not going to have a passport you have 10 days to leave Leningrad or Moscow quite a bit of, quite a bit of the quotations refer to Leningrad because uh, Albert Baburin is a professor in in Leningrad at the Free University in Leningrad uh, so um, he's obviously used the local archives there a great deal a great deal he's used the the archives in moscow too but a lot of the stories relate to leningrad Um, and moving on and talking about leningrad of course what happened in the second world war leningrad was under siege for 900 days and a lot of people had managed to get out of leningrad when they come back they might not have their passport and there's a huge problem and it goes into this question as well how do people prove that they, they they do live in leningrad that they're you know their their home may have been destroyed by bombing but but it's still their home and they're allowed back in so again there's a lot of detail of that there's one reason why it's it's, it's it's a big book it's 500 pages or so but and one reason for that is because of these really valuable personal stories that that um that albert has incorporated uh saying well you know this just shows this is not just a theory about this it's just the practice that you know how you could get into awful trouble uh, if you'd lost your passport, if you didn't have a passport. And also these terrible human stories of people who were just expelled and, and sent away from the big cities uh, and trying to make a life for themselves elsewhere. There's a also a very interesting phenomenon which, which came out of this because when they introduced the passport, they introduced what they called the 100-kilometre the zone. Uh, that was for Moscow and Leningrad, and... Uh, Kharkov or Kharkiv, as it's now called in Ukrainian, which was actually at the, the, just after the revolution, that was the capital of Ukraine. Kiev came came later in the, in the 1930s. Kiev became the capital. But Moscow and Leningrad had a 100 kilometer exclusion zone and Kharkov had a 50 kilometer exclusion zone. And you were literally kicked out. And you then get the development of what's called the 101st kilometer. It was never written down officially in uh in in any uh, document in any official document but it became a slogan for people that um oh you know I live on the 101st kilometer ah that's because you've been expelled and that's as close as you can get and particularly around Moscow and Leningrad where there were railway stations and so the there were certain towns grew up as as famous towns and had famous people living there people who'd been expelled people connected with the old regime and they uh they would produced their own uh, newspapers, not not anti-Soviet, not anti-Bolshevik, but um, the, some of them became cultural centres because you had writers who, who the Bolsheviks didn't like, didn't give them a passport, they had to move out. And suddenly you've got the this phenomenon around Moscow in particular, but also Leningrad, of the 101st kilometre. Um, so there's all these stories that come into the book, which just for anyone who has got an interest in uh, Soviet history. Uh, it, it, it is really fascinating. It's, it's, I found, as, as I say, I've been fascinated by Soviet history for many years, but I found there were so many nuances, so many little bits of, of the history. I'd never heard of the 101st Kilometre until I read this book. And it just helps to explain so many more aspects of the Soviet regime.
1: Yeah I mean that's that's really really fascinating that part especially I mean you know the passport regime not just sort of managing people but actually creating uh, entirely new geographies right and I I wonder to what extent those effects are, are still felt today or you know how many of those towns are still exist in there but yeah the, the production of of these new cultural centers I, I wouldn't have any have had any idea about that and I think that's not how we think about passports really is producing those kind of uh results um right yeah no super interesting stuff and I also you know I also I also found interesting in the book that there's there's some some writing about the sort of Russian attitude to bureaucracy right and how that played out in the process of passport issuing and from what you're saying you know it sounds like that's something that that sort of comes from tsarist times like it's 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 got a long history right um so i think we associate bureaucracy with you know the soviets but it's not there's sort of a continuity there perhaps um right but um And yeah, and I I thought there was a really quite a fun, funny section about, um, you know, people trying to guess what they would need, wasn't it for, for, um, sorry, Stephen, you'll remember better than me, Um, but about trying to sort of guess what what was required to apply for a passport or surely I need to supply more information or trying to sort of, um, they were sort of inventing rules because they weren't. Being told the rules, and they imagine that there must be rules. And sorry, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I wonder if you could say a bit about that.
0: Yeah, there were there were there were two sets of rules. Really, there were the open rules and there were the secret rules. And people had to guess what the secret rules were because they were secret; they weren't published. And so they had to they they had to try and work out what they might need. Um, and so for this, the another word that um, I, I used in in the original, but with an explanation. Um, the passportiska and the passportisca literally means the the woman who issues the passport at the passport desk but it's become a a, or it became a a a sort of general term for for bureaucrats who could perhaps if you greased their palms and um, uh, gave them a little present then they might help you to fill out what you needed Um, so for example there's the story of the the passportisca who um uh, who, who someone, this guy goes to, this is much later in Soviet time. So in the 1970s, um, and, he, and he goes, he says, look, um, you know, I've, I've lost my passport. Um, so I need a new one. So she says, well, you know, well, where did you lose it? Well, he says, "Well, if I knew where I lost it, I wouldn't have lost it, would I?" Oh no, no, no! We need to know where you lost it. So you know which where what what were you doing? Well, I was on my way to my dacha, you know, this summer house that a lot of Russians have, which can might be just a kind of garden shed with a little plot of land around it. They were going to spend the weekend there and grow their vegetables. Um, okay, ah, good. So you were there. So which bus did you get? Well, I got the number twenty-seven bus. You know, ah, so you lost it on the number twenty-seven bus. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I lost it. If I know, I don't found it. I wouldn't have lost it. What? No, no, no. You've got to say where you. Okay, okay. So, so the Tiska is actually helping him, even though she's being terribly bureaucratic. She's helping him. So, so put down that you lost it on the number twenty-seven bus. Okay. So, which date was this? Well, well, well. I suppose it was the twenty-seventh of, of January, uh, and you know, okay, right. So. it's so, so, so there's these these bizarre stories, which this with anyone who's dealt with Russia won't be surprised by that. This just sort of fits in with this Russian bureaucratic way of doing things, um, where so you know you have to make something up in order to fit in with the with the rules. Um, uh, but some and sometimes you know the passportiska could be very helpful. Other times they could be very obstructive. Um, there's a very interesting passage. Um, about uh, about Jewish people and they uh, wanting their passports um, and this is a, actually this is a particularly interesting question because uh, of course if we go back in again in Russian history um, the, the Jews have often been badly treated uh, in Soviet in, in Russian in the Russian Empire pre-soviet times there was what was called the pale of settlement in western Russia there were certain areas where Jewish people could live and only in those areas um, and the word pogrom is a Russian word. It's one of these few words that's come from Russian into English. Um, and it literally means it's from the verb to smash up in Russian. Gramit, um, pogramit. Uh, and a pogrom, of course, is is seen as an attack on people, uh, a violent attack on people, and particularly relating to the to the Jews. And so you, you have tales of pogroms in the late 19th, early 20th centuries uh, in certain parts of Russia. And... Um, And then fast forward into the Soviet period, and there's a time when having a Jewish name on your passport is not good. Um, And bearing in mind also, of course, the Russian way of naming people is that you have your first name, your patronymic, so the middle name, which is based on your father's name, and then your surname. Um, And Russians have, in my experience, have always been very, very sensitive to Jewish names. uh, so any name that, for example, ends in Berg, um, they will automatically say, "Oh, so they're Jewish." They may not be critical of it, but they will—they will really pick it up in a way that I've never particularly uh, thought of it before. Um, if you're called David or David in Russian, you're automatically assumed to be Jewish. Um, if you're, um, you know, so if your father or you, you might be called Ivan, but if you're if you're Ivan Davidovich, so your father was called David they'll automatically assume you're Jewish. And so there's, there are t- stories in there where um, people are choosing their, are or, 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 or getting their passports and people are being told, why don't you, you know, change the name a bit? Um, you know, don't be uh, David Moiseyevich because Moiseyevich from what we would say, Moses in English, clearly Jewish again. And because people could, could either lose jobs or not be selected for jobs. And there's accounts of this in the book because they're have because they seen as being Jewish. So there's long been a, an anti-Semitic um, theme in, 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 uh, in Russian and Soviet history. But then suddenly in the 1970s, there's a switch. And again, the book goes into this because uh, they allowed, there were two periods, one at the end of the 60s and one in the 70s where they actually allowed Jewish emigration And suddenly, if you were Jewish, you actually had a better chance of getting out of the country if you wanted to than if you weren't. Because, of course, the right to travel abroad, and this, of course, totally relates to the idea of a passport, the right to travel abroad was never the right of the Soviet citizen. So, in fact, you had your internal passport, and that's why the book's called The Soviet Passport and refers to an internal travel document, but very, very few people had a passport that allowed them to pass the port and go out of the country Um, but suddenly the jews are allowed to because they 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 emigrate in in their hundreds of thousands people jewish people emigrated particularly to israel many of them um, went to the united states perhaps many people listening to this podcast may even either know people or may have been in that position themselves Um, and suddenly having a jewish name on your passport was seen by some as an advantage because it gave you a chance to leave the country because, after all, the Soviet system, uh, one reason why it did collapse after um, 70, 80 years, because actually it wasn't a terribly good social system. Um, it was repressive. Uh, it, uh, it, as was shown initially by people from the old regime not being given passports and then kicked out of the cities. That, that was just almost the start. Uh, and so that system and that ideology... Which said, you know, communism is right, and if you have any other ideas, you're wrong, and you're going to be repressed for being wrong. And if you want to stand up and and, and and say otherwise, you're a dissident, and that's just going to cause you more problems. And you may be arrested, and you may be put in a labor camp, and you may be given uh, uh, treated with 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 brain changing drugs. Um, unfortunately, all these things happened in in Soviet times. Um, so it was a repressive system. So. No doubt a lot of people wanted to leave. Um, When I joined the BBC World Service, I was um, broadcasting about Russia in English, mainly for the English service, but occasionally I would broadcast on the the Russian language service as well. And it was very interesting to note how the Russian language service at the BBC, and I believe it was also the case at Radio Radio Liberty, um, which was based in Munich in Soviet times, um, was also largely staffed by... Jews from the former Soviet Union, because they were the people who'd been able to get out easier. Um, so uh, the Jewish people have have had a huge influence on Russian history um, and sometimes it's they've suffered for it. But there's also this peculiar twist where actually they're the ones who are able to leave the country and they are often therefore envied by many Russians who would like to leave but can't because they're not Jewish.
1: Right, that's a really interesting intersection between the sort of the role of the the yeah the the passport in sort of internal sense and also in this sort of external sense. Um, yeah, and and that sort of turnaround on yeah, but also I mean I, the other thing that's interesting about that is is the role that the um, prep, uh, the passport issuing what's the term. The passportiska, the passportisca right? The passportiska um, sort of had in in sort of that that being a moment for sort of shaping identity or the way you know even the name you're using, right? I think that's that seems like a a very interesting sort of inca- moment of encounter there. Um, so yeah, all fascinating stuff. And there's also, you know, there's a broader discussion of, of ethnicity as well and the passport in in the book, of course, which we won't have time for. But um, but I definitely urge people to sort of pick up a copy and have a read. I mean, you're certainly going to get your money's worth. It's you know, it is 500 something pages of and of fascinating detail. So so richly researched. Um, well. I want to ask you. Uh, we're going to have to wrap up, but I do want to ask you, Stephen. Um, first, uh, what what are you working on at the moment? Before we do,
0: right now, I'm uh, I'm I'm open to offers for more books to translate. I really really enjoy doing that. Um, but uh, as I mentioned, um, I'm very interested in history and politics, and of course the political situation in Russia uh, and also around the situation between Russia and Ukraine is keeping me um, very occupied at the moment. I am um, I do a, a lot of broadcasting and particularly of late on Monocle 24. I'm, I'm, I'm even doing more and more uh, because it's a very worrying situation around uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, even if in a few weeks time it, it calms down a bit, it's not going to go away in a hurry. Um, unfortunately, Vladimir Putin has turned back the clock in many ways. Um, a lot of the repressive measures that were the feature of the Soviet regime are now are features of the Russian, the current Russian regime under Putin. Um, the last year, since Alex- uh, Alexei Navalny, who is Putin, Putin's biggest opponent, who he tried to poison, uh, we did poison and tried to kill, um, and he went, he was had, was treated in Germany just over a year ago, beginning of twenty. 20- uh, 21. He went back to Russia. He was arrested. He was tried under false charges. He's sitting in prison. Um, he may be in prison for, for many years to come. Um, he has become a modern day dissident. And this is very sad that we we thought in the 1990s, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, that that was a, a word that had been um, just cast aside into, into history and talking about the Soviet period. There are dissidents again now. There are political prisoners again now. So a lot of the modern political situation uh, is it not only interests me, but is keeping me busy um, with some writing and, and broadcasting. Um, but I, I would love to find another history book, particularly or something perhaps on modern politics that um, that, that would come out. Sergei Medvedev's book um, came out at a good time. Now I don't think that that book would be published even in a small print run in in Russia, which is a great pity. Um, But if something like that does appear, um, I would be more than interested in in providing a translation of it.
1: Right. Thank you so much, Stephen. I think that's a great place to close. This has been Catriona Gold speaking with Stephen Diehl, who is the translator for Albert Bayburen's fascinating history, The Soviet Passport, the History, Nature and Uses of the Internal Passport in the USSR. This new English translation was released in November 2021 with Polity Press. If you'd like to pick up a copy, please consider ordering directly from Polity or supporting your local bookstore. Friends don't let friends buy from Amazon. Thank you all for tuning in to the New Books Network, and thanks again for joining me, Stephen.
0: It's been an absolute pleasure. And I hope that uh, it's encouraged a few people to, to go and find the book, as you say, particularly from their local bookstore or indeed from Polity. Um, it, it really is. If you're interested in Soviet history, this will teach you so much more that you didn't even know you didn't know.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Stephen. It's been a pleasure.